The O3C Podcast is a proud member of the HyperX Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the O3C Podcast, coming to you from O3C Games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my oldest, bestest friend, Christopher Dow. Sonic the Hedgehog. And we are two grown men who bloody love video games. Yes, we are. Deal with it. Announcement! Announcement! Before we launch into this week's episode, we want to give you a small nudgeon to visit our Patreon page, please. Patreon.com slash O3C Games. If you're a fan of what we're doing and are in a position to support us, we would be unbearably grateful uh, for a small pledge starting at as little as £4 a month, which is a pound an episode. But higher pledging tiers are available if you are in a position and are so inclined to do that. And not only would you have the immense satisfaction of knowing you are a vital cog in the O3C machine and helping us continue to produce the show, but you will also get a bounty of rewards. Rewards include a dozen full-length exclusive bonus episodes, probably about 100 deleted scenes and outtakes, access to the O3C Discord server where you can chat with us and the other Patreons and our back catalogue of special guests. And a new perk for this season is full video counterparts to the episodes, which are uncut and ad free if subscribing isn't your bag then you can also chuck us a one-off donation via paypal if you head to our website o3c.games and go to the support page you can find a handy donation button there if you want to chuck a few pennies our way to say thanks we would be so so grateful of that as well whilst you consider those invites why not share the podcast on your social media platform tag a friend who may like it tag us at o3c games and help grow the o3c family. Introducing the new HyperX Cloud Stinger 2. The Stinger 2 is a refined evolution of the classic Cloud Stinger and keeps the fan favorite 90 degree rotating ear cups, comfortable memory foam cushions, and the swivel to mute microphone. It also features two years of DTS Headphone X activation for upgraded sound localization, all while keeping the great price of the original Stinger. That's right, get the new Cloud Stinger 2 for only 50 bucks. Now isn't that nice? Available online at Amazon, Best Buy, Walmart, and of course, HyperX.com. So we're back. We're back. We are back, fresh off the back of our play date, which was lovely. I really enjoyed uh, Crankin's time travel adventure and Boogie Loops. I'm still enjoying them, to be honest. Loving my play date. Loving it. But we're not here to talk about play date this week. We are here to report back on our latest Fortnite challenge. Two weeks ago, Chris set me the challenge of playing Castle of Illusion, starring Mickey Mouse and Quackshot starring Donald of the Duck, which are two 16-bit Disney Mega Drive platform games. And I'm really looking forward to to feeding back on those. And I challenge Chris to have a go at classic first-person shooter on the Game Boy Advance X versus Sever. X versus Sever. Can't wait to hear how you got on with that. But before we do that, let us chat about what we've been playing in this last week. What are you buying? What are you playing? As promised last week, I have continued to plow straight on with Resident Evil 3. Naturally. Which, uh, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's not the most revolutionary of games, certainly not in, in the series. And it's it's probably fairly obvious why they decided to, you know, like take a step back after this game originally and reinvented what the series would become with uh, Resident Evil 4. But that's not to say that this isn't a really, really good game because it's it's fantastic. And it, honestly, I think it does a few things better than Resident Evil 2, to be honest. Like, for starters, figure of fun, Mr. X from last week. <laughs> Mr. Hat. Mr. Hat, the hat-wearing X-Men. He has been massively improved upon in uh, in this game uh, in the form of the nemesis which uh, is i mean obviously it's clearly an evolution of an idea that started with mr x because you've got this constantly evolving monstrosity chasing you for the entire game and it's much more frightening much more frightening no hat for a start and (laughs) it's all it takes it's all it takes i mean like half his face is falling off he's got big teeth and he you know but honestly i mean just losing the hat already 10 times scarier and he really feels like an unstoppable force that 
like you do just need to forget about everything else you're doing and just fucking run at times. His design is much more interesting. It's less silly. It's this evolving design as well. So it gets progressively horrible and bigger and scarier as the game goes on. So yeah, so he's really, really good. I mentioned briefly last week that the general control of Jill is a lot faster, more immediate, which is really, really good. There are a lot more developed monsters in this game, in addition to like the lumbering police officer and civilian zombies that you have. There's also the start of like parasitic type entities and there's like horribly mm. mutated sewer creatures there's scuttling spider type things there's there's loads of things to like keep you on edge you know really send a shiver up your spine but the, the, the best thing that resident evil 3 does is is actually the way it forms as a companion piece to resident evil 2 now i i mean i can't speak with full authority because i didn't play the second campaign in resident evil 2 but from what i've been told and been led to believe Claire's campaign in Resident Evil 2 doesn't differ massively from Leon's, whereas in Resident Evil 3, the events, they're, they're sort of happening concurrently, uh, or actually, I think, just before the events of Resident Evil 2. And, and whilst the first couple of hours of the game are played from Jill's perspective, running through infested Raccoon City, uh, you do then switch characters to a chap named Carlos. 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 He ends up treading similar ground, like geographically, to Resident Evil 2. And at first, I I thought it was a bit lazy because it seemed a bit of a cynical way to reuse assets from the previous game. uh, Because you find yourself back in the spooky police station. But then actually the way it plays out is is really quite nice because it is set just before uh, Leon and Claire arrive in Resident Evil 2. And you end up putting things in motion that you will then find... In Resident Evil 2, which I'd already found yeah. as I played it. Uh, so like, even little things like unlocking doors that will then be open when you're playing them in, in Resident Evil 2. Or there's a bit where you blow up a hole in a wall to get through. And, and that's a section that you have to get through when you're playing as Leon. And you know how that's happened now. And there's, there's really, really fun overlapping action that, like, that's what I hoped would be the style of the second campaign in Resident Evil 2. So yeah. you could look at it cynically and say they're just reusing assets and locations. But... But I, I actually really enjoyed the way they did it. It was fun. And you do get to see things from a you know slightly different perspective. And then the game continues to basically ping pong between these two stories, between Jill and Carlos, which was really, really good fun. Carlos and Jill have very different sort of weapon and equipment loadouts as well. So Carlos has got like a, well, he's got a machine gun uh, for a start. Jill's got like a grenade launcher, uh, but she's also got like a lockpick as well and some other sort of useful items. And there'll be, there'll be moments when you're playing as Carlos and you'll be like, oh, there's a lock that I know I can lockpick, but mm, I, I don't have the lockpick because Jill's got the lockpick. So you know that at some point you're going to be playing as Jill and come back to this same area. Yeah. Is there a word in just writing and narrative design generally where mm. the reader or viewer or player has more information than the protagonist or protagonist? There is, isn't there? There is. There must there be, is. because that's, that's basically that example, isn't it? If you can yeah. look at a scene and think, the person involved in this does not know this answer yeah. to a solution, but I do because I've got additional information. It's, it, it's definitely a word, isn't it? There and it I is, don't know yeah. what it is. I don't know what it is. Research time! I found a website with glossary of narrative terms. Oh, here we go. Now, it's difficult to say really because closest i think there is here is the omniscient narrator okay yeah the example it says is a narrator who knows everything about the existence of the story world including the internal or psychological states of all characters and the unfolding of events i i think that's it I yeah think that's it i think that's the closest one it gets difficult because i guess with with a game mm. you are not the narrator per se but you are the director yeah in essence you are you are an overseer of everything you are a godlike figure essentially Mm. like looking over what is happening to these characters and whether or not you have direct control of them doesn't really matter because you have just a level of understanding that they can't possibly have yeah whether that's in pure kind of um like game context where it's understanding or a crate will likely have a goodie in (laughs) or things like that the kind of game logic and and language and, and stuff of games that we understand or if it's narratively for them, what is happening to them that they might not be aware of. So I think that is the one. I think that's the one. But the way that the story is sort of, uh, you know, it'll, it'll jump 
jump slightly back to then show things from Jill's perspective and then you'll get to a point and maybe then you'll jump slightly back and see where, how Carlos got to that point. And I think that would have been just like a much better way to structure the Resident Evil 2 remake by yeah. like dovetailing and alternating between Leon and Claire's campaign for like one single larger campaign, maybe. I mean, it, it, it could be sacrilege to say this, but as I said before, like, I, I don't have any nostalgia for the originals. So, you know, I, I like to think this is a fairly sort of objective opinion. Like there are even times because of how well it sort of overlaps. I almost think like actually the the two games uh, could be just one continuous game. It almost feels like Resident Evil Three is like the the third act of Resident Evil Two. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely it's definitely more action orientated than Resident Evil Two, and you can see where I mean, obviously they went even more so uh, with the action in Resident Evil Five and Six, and it's it still feels like. Resident Evil 4 is the only one that's really got that spot on balance between slower survival horror and then some faster action, you know, sort of pacier sections. Although to be fair, Resident Evil 8 is really, 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 really nicely balanced as well. All in all, though, I think I actually had a better time playing 3 than 2. Um, but then also, you know, I, I'd had my sort of slow survival horror box ticked by Resident Evil 2, so I maybe was a bit happier just having something a bit faster in action. But run and gun. Action, but yeah, but I mean, I must say, as, as, a, as a double bill, incredible gaming. Really, really, really good. I'm a little bit tempted to play 5 and 6. Because <laughs> I've never given them a proper go. I've played a couple hours of a lot of Resident Evil games. 4 is, is the one that, obviously, I have this perpetual sticking mm. point, because I find it too... <sighs> It's, it's too scary for me. It? Yeah, it's, it's impressive. impressive. I, I don't mm. like it. But five is fine. It's it's meant yeah. to be a co-op game. So really you should play it with someone. Yeah. And I did the first, like I said, three hours maybe in co-op. And I, I was fine. I wasn't freaked out by that one. I enjoyed it for what it was. It's pretty mm. decent. Six is a bad game. I, I think no, it, really? is, it is yeah. a bad game. And it really doubled down on just being stupid, stupid nonsense throughout. Yeah. But... You know, maybe if you just want something quick, it might be it might be fun. But it's maybe. like with, within the first five minutes, uh, Leon is like leaping out of exploding helicopters and stuff, and it's just it's taken it too far. Yeah, <laughs> it's gone too far. Yeah, I also have Resident Evil Revelations Two, which I haven't played, and I've got mm. that on the Switch, and I I love the first one. I, the second one's meant to be even better. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I might 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 crack on with that, uh, but I do want to play Mario and Rabbids. Nah, so <laughs> just shoot the zombies. I, yeah, I'm just, I'm really in that. I mean, maybe it's because it's Halloween, but like, yeah. I'm really, I'm really enjoying Resident Evil. Really enjoying it. But, yeah. What have you played? Well, it's been a few more days of uh, the arcade project continuing. Ah, uh, yes. I've skimmed over 2,000 ROMs now for their initial compatibility. And I've got a, a good workflow on the go, I think, now to make things about as smooth as possible. The next phase of the mission is to start scraping relevant artwork for the front end I'm using. And I've done the first 50 or so games just as a quick test to make sure things are all in the right place and working properly. And it just looks really tasty. <laughs> it's just, nice. it's really nice. nice to look at. And it makes such a difference being able to see what you're about to play in terms of just thinking, oh, that looks interesting. I'll give that a go. Or that looks semi-familiar. Maybe I saw a screenshot of that once. And it's you know, I've got this perpetual job of trying to fill these gaps in my knowledge. And this is a really efficient way of doing that. I think just learning yeah. little bits about stuff that otherwise I'd never come across properly. I think my laptop emulation setup was really the first step in having this sort of system, because in that I pulled down box art of everything, but nothing yeah. else. And just having that, it really helped to get a better handle on what was in my collection. But this emu deck and emulation station combo that's available on the Steam Deck is just much more complete. So it's grabbing logos and box arts and screenshots and metadata for 95% of the games in the world. And then if you want to fix the rest of it, it's a bit long-winded, but I kind of know how to do that now. So if I want to sit down with Photoshop for an hour to fill some gaps, I can. Um, and it's just, it's looking really good. <laughs> in terms of actual play, not a great deal. I've played a little bit of Sonic Origins this week. Oh, okay. uh, my brother came over and he wanted to see what Sonic 3 was like in widescreen. So I said, well, there you go. Yeah. I played a bit of a Picross game called Cupid Nonogram that I found on Steam for about £2. You know, it's Picross. It's something to do yeah. on, the, on the sofa. It's nice to have. I played half an hour of the pretty average Ubisoft open world racing game, The Crew, 
that I had years back on the PS4. And again, as with a lot of these games, it was in my Steam library. So let's give it a go. Yeah. And then finally, I've played a good few hours, like a, a solid afternoon's worth of a game called Effie. Effie. As in the, the girl's name, Effie. So I originally picked up a copy of this game on the Switch because a physical copy had been reduced on Amazon to about 11 quid. And as much as I'm doing pretty much all of my gaming at the moment on the Steam Deck, the Switch is still the place that I've been buying physical games for to satiate my collector mindset. And even as I've sold off, like, no lie, hundreds of PlayStation 4 and Vita games over the last few months, the Switch library is still steadily growing kind of game by game. But as soon as I put Effie in the Switch, I could tell pretty sharpish that it probably wasn't the best place to play the game because it was one of those ports where the resolution was pretty low, like kind of sub switch resolution. The edges and everything were pretty stair steppy and jagged. Performance was passable, but if we're being charitable, probably quite variable. And again, like the crew hopping over to the Steam Deck, lo and behold, it's in my library from two years ago. (laughs) So apparently like Hotshot Racing last week, it's very likely a bundle purchase from Humble or some other similar storefront it would have just arrived in a in a group like that. And after some settings tweaking, I was in and I was ready to go and the game was just looking and feeling much better, whether or not I was trying to play it as a handheld game or plugging it into the TV with my Steam Deck, Dock, Deck, Dock. Mm. I do get the feeling that it's not the best optimised game all in because it took a decent amount of fiddling to get running properly, kind of comfortably and smoothly. But I think we're locked in now and a few hours in, things are feeling really nice and smooth. It's basically a 3D platform game, a little bit open-worldy in that you can tackle big stages in any order with kind of a pleasant Hyrule Field-style hub world in between. There is a story that I largely skipped through whilst I was fiddling with graphic settings, but I seem to be controlling an old guy called Garland who is gradually discovering, or I guess in the case of the game's law, rediscovering powers like double jumps and dashes and a range of attacks and stuff like that. And the titular Effie is, I think, your granddaughter in the story. So in between little sections that you achieve, you retell your exploits to her with the narrator doing his best Bastion impression as you play as well. Sort of saying, Garland couldn't do that right now and that sort of stuff. (laughs) It's not done as well as Bastion. It's not done as frequently as Bastion. Uh, But it's clear that that is the influence that they are going with. He rolled around for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) That's the classic one, isn't it? I love that. Kid wasted his time. (laughs) (laughs) So you're collecting things, you're finding treasure chests, you're fighting enemies, you're solving little puzzles. It's all pretty standard stuff, but it is comfortingly assured in its execution. And it is an indie game, sure, but it's one of those push the boat out for an Unreal Engine license indies rather than this is my first Unity project indie. And it means there's kind of a pretty decent level of polish to it all. Even if reviews on Steam seem to suggest that it had quite a rocky launch because there's a lot of people talking about performance and, and things like that. But it seems quite smooth from what I've played for the four or five hours I'm in now. Outside of the engine still being quite juicy in terms of how much it seems to tax any hardware, it's it's a good time. feels good to play. I don't think it's massively long, so it would be nice to try and beat it before my holiday is up. But as with all games that I play, we'll have to see how I get on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, I, but I like it. I would recommend it. Um, just maybe not the Switch version, unless that's the only way you have to play it. <laughs> Thank you. So, it's time to report back. Chris, what did you challenge me to play? I challenged you to play the Disney double act of Castle of Illusion and Quackshot on the Sega Mega Drive. Two games I was quite fond of as a young'un. Castle of Illusion more as the Master System version, because that's what I had access to when I was Wii. But Quackshot, especially, I have a fond memory of having that cartridge for some time and getting a lot of fun out of it. Well, I played both these games. In fact, I've played a bit more than both these games. Of course. I decided to, <laughs> <laughs> I decided to uh, refresh my memory of the Master System version, first of all, because that's the version that I had. Yeah. I remember lusting after the Mega Drive version. I remember seeing coverage of it on, like, I don't know, 
bad influence or maybe yeah in games master or or something like that and thinking that was like the epitome of like high-tech cinematic video gaming which it was at the time you know I, I confess I didn't get that far into playing the Master System version as it's it's really not the most enjoyable game to play. I mean, to be honest, the amount of 8-bit platformers that are good to play, you can count on with the fingers of one hand. I mean, obviously you've got like the original Super Mario Brothers and I mean the 8-bit version of Donkey Kong Country on the Game Boy Color. <laughs> <laughs> but... Cast of Illusion on the Master System felt like I was playing the Asterix game, which I had and loved, still have. It's not a, a, a brilliant game by today's standards, but for, for how far it pushed the console at the time, Asterix, I think, is the most impressive platform game on that console, even considering like what a good job Sega did with bringing Sonic the Hedgehog to the machine. Yeah. Yeah. Cast of Illusion like, it literally starts exactly the same way as Asterix does. It's in the same environment. It's even got the same enemies, which with exactly the same move sets. It's really, really weird. It's, it's, it's like p- play the first level of both those games. I wonder, like back then, I'm pretty sure Castle of Illusion on both Mega Drive and Master System was developed by Sega. It was an in-house job. Yeah. And I, I wonder if Asterix was as well. Maybe, maybe. Let's find out. A bit more research time. Research time. <laughs> Asterix, Asterix. Uh, developer Sega. Yeah. So it could <clears throat> well be that it had the same team behind it completely. Uh, so I was excited to, to boot up the Mega Drive version on my on my Steam Deck. Obviously, I was playing all of this stuff on my Steam Deck, and I was expecting the Mega Drive version to be a lot a lot smoother and for it to feel like a big generational leap better than the Master System version. Something akin to you know playing one of the Sonic games or yeah. Super Mario World or Donkey Kong Country. But to be honest, it never. It never really reaches those, I mean, admittedly lofty comparison points. Yeah. Castle of Illusion, I'd say, sits firmly in the B tier 16-bit platforming games, along with its other Disney brothers and sisters. You know, brethren. Like, like, it's brethren, like Aladdin <laughs> and the Lion King. I mean, you know, the quality is denoted more by how glossy the pixel art is and yeah. making you feel like you are playing a film more than having a silky smooth, ultra-responsive, tight platforming game experience the main thing that i had to get used to is where mickey ends up being on the screen to dictate scrolling yeah and you'd expect it to be on the left hand side or maybe like slap bang in the middle if you're going to be doing lots of back and forthing but you have to be alarmingly far forward for the screen to to follow you which means that a lot of the platforming elements can feel really quite unfair uh, especially with like repeatedly spawning enemies which also do that with very little consistency <laughs> it's it's decent enough there, there were a couple of levels that, that did sort of trigger a, a childhood memory of longing for this game notably there's a level where you're going along the shelves of a house which is really really nice i like you know i love that sort of sense of scale in games yeah, yeah. but there's also there's a there's a lot of times when the game just seems deliberately confusing which is, is a sign of its time i know but then it's also i thought maybe it's possible that like the director saw the design of some of the levels and then just went, you know what, why don't we call this game Castle of Illusion? And then people will think that we did this on purpose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, because, you know, th- there's there are things like puzzles with no signposting, um, sort of trial and error, things you have to just like brute force your way around, which, like I said, it's not uncommon in older games uh, where, you know, they are that bit more obtuse knowing that the player will only have that game to play and if they did know all the answers uh, the game would be about 10 minutes long yeah but to be fair like the game was you know it was challenging enough which again i think is a bit more down to its age and slightly clunky controls certainly for the boss fights but it does still have a lot of charm to it and i think that it's strange given how recognizable and familiar mickey mouse is as a character the amount of content that i mean certainly i've seen him in is ridiculously low like, yeah. I've seen Steamboat Willie. I've seen his bit in Fantasia. And that's really it outside of playing Castle of Illusion and also Epic Mickey, which I know was meant to be good, but I never played it. Also, I've never played Kingdom Hearts. I don't know if Mickey Mouse is, is a big player in that. Well, there we go. There we go. He's a big part of that. But for me, it felt quite novel to spend some time <laughs> with Mickey. So that was that was quite nice. That was quite nice. Contrary to what Jonathan suggested here, this is a non-exhaustive list of some of the video games that Mickey Mouse has starred in, 
If anyone else wants to put together a short film and television reading list to give Jonathan other ways to spend some time with Michael Mouse, do write in. Mickey Mouse has fronted. The Game Boy and NES puzzle platform series just titled Mickey Mouse, which spanned multiple entries, Disney Golf, Disney Learning, Mickey Mouse, Disney Magic Board Online, Disney Sports Basketball, Disney Sports Football, Disney Sports Skateboarding, Disney Sports Soccer, Disney Think Fast, Disney's Hide and Sneak, Disney's Magical Mirror starring Mickey Mouse, Disney's Magical Quest, Disney's Party, Epic Mickey, Epic Mickey 2, The Power of Two, Fantasia, Fantasia Music Evolved, The Illusion series comprising at this stage of Castle of Illusion, World of Illusion, Legend of Illusion, Land of the Illusion, the 2013 Castle remake, and the Epic Mickey 3DS spin-off titled Power of Illusion, Kingdom Hearts, Kingdom Hearts 3D Dream Drop Distance, Kingdom Hearts 358-2 Days, Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep, Kingdom Hearts Coded, Kingdom Hearts 3, Magical Tetris Challenge, Mickey Mania, Mickey Mouse Magic Wands, Mickey Mouse The Computer Game, Mickey Mouse Capade, Mickey No Tokyo Disneyland Daiboken, Mickey's 123 The Big Surprise Party, Mickey's Adventures in Numberland, Mickey's Dangerous Chase, Mickey's Racing Adventure, Mickey's Safari in Letterland, Mickey's Space Adventure, Mickey's Speedway USA, Mickey's Ultimate Challenge, and the Atari 2600 Fantasia tie-in, simply called The Sorcerer's Apprentice, to name but a few. The next thing I did was have a little look at the remake of the game. Oh, it's a really, really nice game. I must say they've done a fantastic job. Uh, I, I think I definitely appreciated it more directly comparing it to yeah. my playthrough of the original. Like I think if I didn't have that knowledge, then and I think it would still be a, a pretty solid platform game, but not on the level of, say, you know, like a Nintendo first party platformer. But it, it's really, really cool to see like what elements of the original game they've decided to retain, uh, which ones they've decided to evolve, uh, which ideas they've just decided to jettison entirely because they were shit. But the key central tone and atmosphere that made the original special and still like triggers that childhood sense of wonder in me, even though, you know, I only saw it as a kid, not not play it. That's still there. And it, it, it's, it's really beautifully realised in a modern context. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the Pokemon Let's Go games, mm, which yeah. totally update the original Pokemon Red and Blue games on the Switch. But playing those felt like how those first games felt in my memory because yeah. my childhood memory of those original Pokemon games filled in all the colors and added a lot more pixels uh, than, <laughs> than were actually there in reality. Like it's, it's definitely the right way to do a remake. I think an intelligent remake that really challenges what works and what doesn't, you know, sometimes a game needs a bit more modernizing than others. Something like Wonder Boy Dragon's Trap, uh, that remake barely needed anything doing just a slightly refined menu system um, and the paint job on top of it was was a lovely bonus but the game itself holds up unbelievably well i did try a while back i tried the ducktales remastered game yeah and that felt like it needed a lot more uh, modernizing despite like a really lovely paint job it still played like a dated game i never want to think about the alex kids original or it's tawdry remake ever again <laughs> so i'll just focus on uh, on the good remakes that get it right castle of illusion can certainly go in that camp along with like black mesa pokemon let's go and resident evil 2 resident evil 2 resident well i don't know i can't i can't say because i didn't play the originals really oh. um but hopefully that's what resident evil 4 is going to be and dead space as well i think it's shaping up to a really 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 good remake so quack shot yeah good fun ducks 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 are funny <laughs> <laughs> and he wears a hat he does wear a hat it's a very funny game and plungers make you think of poo they do weirdly enough the platforming action in the game felt better than castle of illusion uh, yeah. there's there's a there's a few more movement mechanics available namely being able to slide on the floor which i quite liked it gave yeah. a lot more fluidity to how it all felt your central weapon is your plunger gun it can be used to stun enemies. You can uh, upgrade it and then you can shoot walls and use it as little platforms. Uh, later on, you can upgrade it again uh, and uh, shoot birds and hold on to it to fly. It's really annoying that you can't kill enemies yeah. with, with your plunger gun. He's a pacifist. Um, because, 
but he has got a popcorn gun and a bubble gun that do kill enemies. Oh, that's true, actually. Yeah. So no, he's not a pacifist. <laughs> he's certainly not. No, he's a very angry duck. Yeah. But you have to go in and out of menus to change your weapon. And the popcorn and bubble gun also have exhaustible ammo that isn't necessarily readily available. It always felt just a little bit frustrating. I always felt under-equipped for what the game was asking me to do. That there are parts of the game where you do need actual ammo to like clear blocks and, and stuff. And to be fair, the game that puts like ammo drops and, and things like that. But it would have been nice to have had those different weapon options be a bit more integrated. I didn't even know you could fire your plunger gun up for all of the game until you have to um, to fire a, your green plunger onto the underside of a bird. Wish I'd known that. Wish I'd yeah. known that you could fire up. It would have made some of the boss fights a lot easier. Um, but there we go. There we go. <laughs> There's a fun mechanic in the game revolving around Donald Duck's temper, uh, where if your temper rises high enough, you go into this like unstoppable rampage and you just defeat anything in your path at great speed. It's really, really fun. It's like akin to getting like a superstar or something like that in Mario. But it's, it's, it's literally, you can, it's, there's about two places in the game where you use it. And it's a bit of a shame because that's really fun. And it'd be nice if there was a bit more of that. I think the best way of describing the game is that it is a whole bunch of incredible ideas that are ahead of its time, but absolutely yeah. not fully realized in this form. Like this vague Metroidvania-esque-ness is definitely... A generous way of describing it <laughs> the, the levels work as standalone levels yeah. and when you get to a roadblock you'll plant a flag and you can go to another level to get something to overcome the previous roadblock and then you can basically just walk back to your flag to continue that level a couple of the things you need are like movement mechanic based around like i said like upgrading your plunger gun to get steps and hanging things so i mean i don't know i wouldn't really call it a metroidvania it's more elements of point and click games than anything else i think go through this area to get a key to get through a previous area etc that sort of thing yeah although the location hopping is quite fun um, because it does give each level a really distinct different flavor and tone even if the enemies are largely exactly the same throughout but it's, it's nice to have that sort of degree of flexibility over what order you do the levels in even though you do have to do them in a certain order to actually get through it so it sometimes can be a bit frustrating because you think oh I'm going to play through this level. Am I going to get to a roadblock and then have to do another one anyway and then have to play through a level? Blah, 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 blah. But it's certainly a, a really interesting comparison point to Castle of Illusion, as are, I think, the other Disney platformers of that era. Like I said, Aladdin and the Lion King, which are, I think, the only two that I've played. They do have this, this degree of gloss in the level of quality of the sprite design, the animation, uh, certainly the background art. But, you know, they really do look very very bright and colourful. And at the time, it would have felt akin to playing your favourite movie or Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. Gameplay-wise, it's interesting that Disney always were trying to like push the boundaries with what they were trying. They weren't just resting on their laurels and banking on their famous characters. Like Quackshot is certainly more of an example of their gameplay design ambitions than Castle of Illusion. And I think both hold up decently enough today despite showing their age in terms of their design and mechanics but like i said at the start it's also really clear that these disney games are absolute b tier compared to nintendo and sega's first party platforms at the time i think that the donkey kong country games yeah. certainly sonic 3 and knuckles are the apex of that genre for that generation to be honest actually any generation that's come since like I, I love the SNES <laughs> yeah, Mario yeah, games, even like the All-Stars remakes and Super Mario World. They still feel as good to play as any other 2D platform game. You know, the fact that I got so much value out of Super Mario Maker is a testament to the agelessness of, of the Mario games. But I think, like, it's the big risk of emulation and one of the potential perils of revisiting older games is that they might not hold up as well as you remember them. Yeah. But then it also does give you a lot more respect for the games that do. And it's also really, really nice to have the opportunity to see and play games that were building blocks in the evolution of video games as a whole. I really do admire the ambition of these games and uh, and what they were trying to do. Not going to play them again, but uh, I'm really, really glad to have done that. I'm also enjoying being set games that I can complete within an hour. Uh, so uh, <laughs> well done to you, Chris. <laughs> With any old games, like I've been dipping in and out of kind of emulation libraries for quite a long time now. Like it's always been something I've been quite interested in, partly because I've got this 
like I mentioned earlier, desire to know about every game that's ever existed for anything. Literally. But also it's it's in a similar way, I guess, that you can look back at say like early cinema and films are much slower or films have a lot less movement just because of the, the technical limitations of not being able to lug a camera around and everything else. Yeah. There's things you, you can kind of watch a film and think, okay, this is not like a film I'd go and see at the cinema now. It's not a film that would be made now, but I can sort of appreciate the problems they had at the time, how they tried to overcome that, how certain directors or, or certain kind of, um, you know, visionaries within that industry were thinking, well, what can we do to push this forwards? And that's what I find most interesting, I think, about visiting old games, that you do have some that are just 10 a penny, platforms are populous, let's make a platformer. But then you do have these examples where it's like, well, what happens if we just tweaked it a little bit? Just gave like a player a bit more kind of uh, agency over where, where we're going to go next. Or, you know, using weaponry in a slightly different way or using power-ups in a different way or whatever it might be. And they don't always work out and they're not always things that you're going to go, oh, that was amazing and I can't wait to play that again. But I think it does just help fill gaps sometimes to yeah. help track that sort of, you know, garden path that started with something and ended with something else. Yeah. There's a lot of stones along the way. And, and sometimes I think it's easy to forget how refined things are in 2022 or whenever you might be listening to this versus how games were in the early 90s or, or late 80s, essentially, for some of these. Yeah, it's just it's been a long time. It's been a very fast moving industry, but a long time at the same time. So over to you, Chris. I set you the challenge of playing X versus Sever, which is a first person shoot 'em up game on the Game Boy Advance. I had it uh, back on my Game Boy Advance. I bought it as soon as I knew that it existed because I couldn't believe that I was going to have a first person shoot 'em up on on a handheld console. I'm really, really intrigued to see how you think it. One, how it holds up today, uh, and two, sort of how it compares to other ambitious ports of first person games on uh, on sort of lower powered hardware yeah i mean i mentioned when this was set that my overriding memory of x versus seven is watching you play it yeah on that unlit game Boy Advance screen in our form room nearly 25 years ago yeah and i had dipped into this game once or twice via emulation over the years because it's one of those games that's pretty good at taxing an emulation setup you know it's it's doing a lot of heavy lifting, essentially, mm. with, with this kind of um, version of a 3D renderer that it's, it's pumping out. And less accurate emulators often struggle with the way it handles 3D or some have like iffy audio. Like uh, I remember playing it at some stage on the Vita, whichever emulator that was running, and it had a really off-putting buzz that just persisted throughout playing. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> committing time to this. This is too annoying. But playing it in 2022 through on the Steam Deck, this is pretty much perfect emulation of the game that you played as an adolescent, except now it's on a bigger, brighter screen. (laughs) So it's lovely. Now, X vs. 7 was a big deal on the GBA because it was one of the first games that attempted some sort of 3D engine on the hardware. You know, the GBA being a handheld that was not that much more powerful than the Super Nintendo, really. Whilst the SNES did have a port of Doom, which was impressive in itself, but kind of unplayable. (laughs) To pull that feat off at all, it needed extra chips inside the cartridge, like it used one of the Super FX chips. Whereas X versus Ever is just running from stock hardware, no modification. This is just the Game Boy Advance pumping this out. Doom is quite a good comparison point because it also had a Game Boy Advance release about a month before X versus Ever. Did it? It did, yeah. And both games use this sort of 3D rendered environments with scaling sprites for enemies and pickups and everything else. And if anyone's struggling to visualize it, it's a style that we're familiar if you've ever played a 90s first person shooter on a computer or anything else really, because they all use that same format. So Duke Nukem is rendered in that way. Exhumed is rendered in that way. They they all did the same thing, kind of 3D environments and and 2D things in it that just got bigger or smaller as you were closer and further away. The main difference, I guess, here between Doom and X versus Sever is that Doom was obviously a port of an existing product. So you kind of knew what you were expecting. And X versus Sever was entirely its own thing. At the time, it was being developed as a tie-in to a film that through delays wouldn't launch until about a year after the game. Yeah. A delay that was so long, in fact, that the original game bears no resemblance to the film's plot. And a sequel game called X vs. Seven Ballistic was released as a much more accurate tie-in alongside the eventual film's yeah. cinematic release. So it's got a bit of interesting history to it. The plot and dressing is all pretty much irrelevant, though, because it just acts as the excuse for why you are either playing as X or Seven in its game world, just to make you run around warehouses and offices and back streets and government buildings to shoot some bad slags with a variety of weapons. And that's kind of it. 
And you know what? The game is really, really good. Yay. <laughs> it's really good. Like yeah. it, it took me a while to relearn the control scheme, first and foremost. Yeah. The D-pad moves you forwards and backwards. You can turn left and right. And then as standard L and R, the shoulder buttons allow you to strafe in their respective directions. If you hold both shoulder buttons, you can duck, which is really important when you're trying to dodge enemy fire or trying to utilize cover to avoid taking damage. And then the face buttons fire your weapon or interact with objects. And then you can use select to change your weapon. So it's a pretty pretty simple setup, but it does take a little bit of time to get used to. Within a level or two, I felt pretty comfortable. It's not that dissimilar to the setups employed by other first-person games of the era on platforms without dual sticks. Yeah. So, you know, games on the PlayStation 1 or certainly early in the PS1's life before the DualShock existed, yeah. on the Saturn, on the N64, on the Dreamcast, even the PSP, we've been really spoiled by years now of doubled analog sticks. But back then, that was just how it was, and it was perfectly serviceable, really. Stage layouts are really nicely designed in that they seem to be designed to feel like real contiguous spaces. So you're not suddenly warped from place to place. There's a genuine feeling of interconnectedness in each stage, but also in stage two stage, as you finish one and move to another, there's there's a clear sort of byline of how you've got there. And similar to something I said about Goldeneye about a billion years ago on this show, there's often these rooms and hallways that are included just to make places feel a bit more real, yeah. as opposed to every piece of square footage serving just to push you from A to B, like Call of Duty does even today in a lot yeah. of its campaign stuff. Like you will find dead end alleyways sometimes. You will find unlocked rooms that have nothing much in them. They're just there because that's how a real building would be. And that's how spaces are often designed. And I really like that. It just feels a bit more honest, like I'm actually in a place. Yeah. Guns feel pretty good as well. You've got some weighty shotguns, you've got assault rifles, you've got grenade launchers, and even on a couple stages, a sniper rifle. Yes. And so good. The implementation, as far as I can tell, trying to pick apart how this is done. I think it essentially just roots your character in place and then lets you take control of a cursor with a colored filter over the screen that you're then walking around. So I think that's how it would work, like trying to kind of balance how that would make sense. That then lets you obviously zoom in. There's problems sometimes when you can kind of almost see through corners because it's it's struggling with that. But it just feels really clever. It just feels really clever. It's I really appreciate kind of sometimes when you can see the seams of these kind of old tricks. Because, again, it's that idea of working with the harbour and saying, okay, well, we can't do this, really. We're not actually zooming into a space, so how can we make that work? And if that is a case of just saying, well, let's take an orange piece of paper and just drive it round, that's fine, because it it works. It works enough to kind of uh, sell the idea. One thing I'm not so keen on is the way that enemies are placed in stages. Mm -hmm. And I'm just coming to the end of the X campaign now. So I think I'm on, like, mission 11, And within the 10 stages I've been so far, it is remarkable how many stages start with you spawned directly in front of an enemy who will shoot (laughs) you on load if you don't rapidly get out of the way. Yeah. And and you can't know that. So presumably, the first time you play, because that's what was happening to me, I'd start the stage, die immediately, and then be like, well, I guess I have to shoot or move, don't I? But that would really piss me off, especially as a kid, Mm. to then have to be like, well, I guess I'll load it and try it again then, shall I? Sort of that sort of indignant way of reapproaching a level. In levels themselves too, you'll often say, ride an elevator up to an upper floor and have no way of knowing firstly which side the lift is going to open because we're we're talking about very low textures on the GBA. That's also very true to real life though. I've (laughs) I've, I've done that before. A lot of hospitals, yeah. Yeah. So when it does open, you immediately get massacred by three dudes with shotguns that are impossible to deal with unless you know they're going to be there. And because there's no kind of checkpointing in a level, other than kind of the password you get at the start of the stage, it can be really, really annoying if you're trying to play it legitimately, get into a stage with like, oh, a new, new area, and then just immediately getting yeah. blammoed. <laughs> now, I've been a good boy in that I haven't used save states at all in this game other than to just save my level progress mm. because I don't want to be writing down passwords because I'm <laughs> no. I'm not about password saving in the year of our Lord 2022. That's, that's no, not for so me. You, you are better than that. You are. <laughs> But by golly, I have been tempted (laughs) to use save states during some of these gotcha encounters because I may have only beaten, say, 10 stages, but RetroArch says I've played the game for over four hours. So you can do the maths to work out the average of how long some of these later stages have taken. I don't know if I'll have the stamina to forge on to finish the whole game because it is really tough. Mm. But I have really enjoyed my time with it. 
and I'll likely keep it set as a favorite in my emulator setup so it's easy to return to if the mood takes me yeah but there's just so many games to play aren't there (laughs) it's just a lot of games to play now I seem to recall I don't remember you finishing this almost certainly not You, you may know otherwise but generally that was something almost unheard of for teenage done <laughs> because you you were the one who finished say mario kart super circuit a billion times yeah and you finished mario 64 on the ds with 150 stars on every save file multiple times yeah so that that kind of you know really really pushing and squeezing a game for everything that it had mm. It was always shocking to me that X vs. Several was one that I'm I'm pretty sure you dropped. I don't think you got through everything. I could be could be wrong. I don't have a memory of doing that. Yeah. Uh, I think I would remember. There are there are a few games I can remember as a kid that I never completed. Yeah. Um like Cannon Fodder on the Game Boy Color. Ridiculously hard. Uh, unfair. <laughs> it was. It was totally unfair. Good game though. Good oh game. yeah, very, very good. <laughs> War really has never been so much fun. It hasn't. X vs. Seven. Two thumbs up. Fantastic. I've only ever played the first stage of the sequel slash actual movie tie-in. Maybe that's even better. Yeah. Don't know. Like, I remember it being a bit more involved in terms mm-hmm. of sort of the objectives I had to do or the, or the places I had to move around. But again, I'm basing this on literally one level, so I yeah. can't say that much about it. But at some stage, maybe I'll pop in, play a bit more, and uh, let people know about that as well. Fantastic. Well, there we go. We've now reached an even more exciting part of the episode, which is laying down the next challenge. The Smackdown. So, Chris, do you want to find out what you're going to be playing for the next couple of weeks? Come on then. Okay. Rub my hands together. I would like you to play a really, really good little indie game that I discovered in the last couple of years. It made it onto my honourable mentions. For the amendment season, and that is Mo Astray. Oh, okay. It's a gorgeous 2D side-scrolling action platformer. It's got a lot of puzzle elements in it, as well as a hint of Metroidvania-ness to it. I think I, I picked it up on the back of a really, really good, I think it was like a 9 out of 10 review on Nintendo Life. But I was still, I was really taken by surprise at, at, at its quality. Like, uh, yeah, I had fantastic time playing it i know it's available on steam as well these days too so i guess it'll be up to you if you play it on the deck or on the switch i'm not yeah. sure if it's had a physical release uh, on the it switch. has not i would know if it had <laughs> i really hope you enjoy it i will get it downloading i'll give it a go now for you mm. ever so slight deviation i'm going to give you a choice of two to pick from because okay. they are similar in a way so i've gone for the same kind of train of thought but I want you to have the deciding vote as to what you would like to try. So you know I'm 100%ing both these games. (laughs) (laughs) Both are pretty cheap. Both are on Steam or Switch or PlayStation, whatever you want to play them. So you've got plenty of options. And both are 3D platformers that take pretty heavy influence from the collectathons of the N64 and early sort of PS2 era. Uh So you were either going to play or play both. uh, A game called Poi that I beat a few years ago now that I really enjoyed on the Switch or a game called Unbox Newbie's Adventure. Now, for these two games, Poi is a little bit more upfront with his inspirations. So you're leaping in and out of stages, very Mario 64 style to complete different objectives. Unbox is set across wider stages and bases all its puzzles and goals more on the unique challenges that come from getting around as a cuboid cardboard box. So it's got a good sense of humour to it. Like I said, I finished Poi. I had a really good time with it a couple of years back. I've quite recently played the first hour or so of Unbox. I just never mentioned it on the show. But enough to see that it seems a pretty decent time, I'd say. The choice is yours to make at a time of your choosing prior to our next Fortnite Challenge recording. Fantastic. I've had just a very, very quick Google and I really like the look of both of them. And you know I'm going to play both if I can. You, yeah. I need to start setting you just more work. I'll be like, this week you're playing a 200-hour RPG and I will not accept anything mm. less than a 200-hour save file as proof and evidence that you enjoyed it. A commensurate yeah, amount. fair enough. So there we go. That was our Fortnite Challenge report. Uh, reporting back on Class of Illusion and Quackshot starring Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck respectively and 
X versus Sever. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we've enjoyed listening to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Next week, we will be continuing our Playdate playthrough and we're going to be reporting back on Lost Your Marbles and Pick Pack Pup. Really looking forward to chatting to you about those games. If you're enjoying what we're doing, please do share the podcast on your social media platforms. You can also engage with us on ours. We are at O3C Games on everything. Check out our Patreon page if you fancy getting more involved in supporting us, patreon.com slash O3C Games, or visit our support page on our website, O3C.Games. You can reach out to us individually as well. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I am at chats underscore Hodges. Have yourself a wonderful week, and we will see you same time next week for a play date. I'm Colette. And I'm Matt. It's time to talk about the most important topic facing humanity. Video games. Oh, okay, video games. (laughs) Every week on Colette and Matt have entered the chat, we have in-depth conversations about the games we're currently playing. We also talk to people who make video games as well as YouTubers, writers, and podcasters that you already know and love. We also talk about what you're playing when you join our community. Subscribe to Colette and Matt have entered the chat wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Hardcore Gaming 101 podcast is on a mission to rank the top games of all time. I like the idea that when Bruce Wayne gets angry, he switches to the Batman voice. Uh, Why do you have such a problem making boomerangs shaped like a bat? You mean like Batman? Not like Batman, just make it for me! Bruce Wayne, I can't even with this guy. It's a Herculean task, and I'd be lying if I said it hasn't taken a toll on our cognitive faculties. Most people would be happy to have a job during a global pandemic. (laughs) Dennis! Hardcore Gaming 101, twice a week, every week, right here on the HyperX Podcast Network. HyperX has refined their lightweight Cloud Stinger headset and now proudly presents the evolved Cloud Stinger, that's right, two. It still keeps the same rotating ear cups that you have come to love, swivel to mute microphone and comfort, but now adds two years of premium DTS Headphone X activation. Get even better in-game audio and a number of other refinements for the low, 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 low price of 50 US dollars. Available now at hyperx.com.